Enter the crib. Your strike back sit rep starts in three, two, one. Wait, do we go on zero? Welcome back, everybody. Uh, you know, we say this every once in a while that our guest this morning certainly doesn't need an introduction, and it has never been more true than our guest for today. So I'm just going to cut right to the chase and um, welcome executive producer, showrunner, writer, director <laughs> of the world of Warrior, Jonathan Tropper. Welcome. Hi, thanks. That was, that was a, I would have liked to hear the long version of that. Intro. <laughs> I'll email you. <laughs> so I'm wondering if we can kick off, if you can sort of just take us back to kind of the beginning and the first conversations maybe you had with Shannon Lee in particular about building this world because one of the things we have found so fascinating, one enjoyed watching as fans, but then talking to everybody is how detailed and how full the world is that, that you built. And we ask people and they're always like, Jonathan Trump, Jonathan Trump, it's all him, it's all him. So, you know, if you can, I guess, yeah, sort of tell us a little bit about how, how you guys talked about building the world and how it came to be. Um, yeah, so I had been finishing up another show for Cinemax called Banshee, which was in its final season. And I had- You may have heard of that. Monster fans. This podcast, you've probably heard of it. But, um, uh, and, and, you know, we, uh, the network had asked us to do five seasons and we had made the decision that it really ends in four. And um, so we had just told the network uh, we were going to end it in the fourth season. And Carrie and Phyllis, who ran the network, was very, um, he, he was really support, you know, it, it was really interesting because we were their most successful show and you would think they would have pushed us for that fifth season. But, you know, when I kind of explained to him how the story kind of has run its course, he was very supportive of that. And then he called me like a week or two later and said, you know, what are you planning to do next? And I said, you know, I'm not sure. I'm looking at a few things. And he said, well, you know, he knew I was a big Bruce Lee fan. And he said, you know, we had this meeting with Bruce Lee's daughter and Justin Lin and you know, they've got this treatment he wrote a million years ago and it's, you know, and so like there was nothing about that that didn't get me excited. <laughs> um, I had apprehensions, but I was very excited. And I went to, uh, I went to, uh, I think, I don't remember if I did a phone call first or just uh, went to a meeting uh, in LA when I got to LA with, with Justin and Shannon. And I think uh, what's weird is that I think it was an audition meeting for me. Mm. Um, like they wanted to hear my take on Bruce Lee and my take on, on the material and my take on the time period. And I honestly don't remember ever getting like, you know, usually when you do these things, then your agent calls a day or two later and says, oh, they left you, they want to work with you, or oh, well, we got to see, they're still talking to three other. I don't remember any of that happening. It felt like by the end of that meeting, we were already working on the show. Right. And um, and it was it was daunting in that, you know, you're dealing with Bruce Lee's legacy and, his daughter's an executive producer on the show, and um, you feel a tremendous sense of responsibility to the family and to the fan base uh, to not blow it. Um, and at the same time, he had picked a really intricate, uh, a really involved and, and, and complicated time in American history to set the show in. And that took a tremendous amount of research because I didn't know anything about it. And like most most Americans, my history lessons in high school and college did not really cover uh, the Chinese immigration experience for more than, uh, you know, 
a page or two here and right. there, maybe yeah. when, we talk, when you're only only tangentially when you're learning about the railroad or you're learning about. Uh, I was going to say it's the, the railroad is always like the little paragraph exactly. that you get. Yeah. Right. And so, um, so basically, I started to do a lot of research, and it was very intimidating because I'd never done a period piece before uh, to think about how to build this show. And um, in the end, there was just so many. There's no comprehensive history of this. There's just a lot of sort of interconnected nuggets and the, that the fact that that exists in that way was both fascinating and also a little bit liberating because we felt free to kind of invent a tapestry based on all these nuggets as opposed to having some kind of authoritative text that told us it has to be this way um, and at the same time tonally to sort of embrace the bruce lee um, I mean, the Bruce Lee ethos, uh, you know, if you looked at his movies, there was always a sense that Bruce Lee was clearly a fan of Westerns. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. You know, clearly in the, in the movies, he, he embraced a slightly heightened reality and a, slight, a slightly heightened way of dealing with things. And so we, um, you know, we decided to do the show in that way where we, we heightened the world a little bit. We didn't have to make it a, a, a really detail-oriented docudrama. We could create sort of our graphic novel version of the world. And once we were doing that, every little bit of history we could dig up, it, it was really fun to infuse that into the show because we were being sort of very accurate and true to the time period, except when we weren't. And, <laughs> and that, was, that was sort of the fun of it. So I'm interested, um, you know, right from the beginning, we've, it's been made very clear that it's based on the writings of right. Bruce Lee. And so, can you give us an idea of how much of what he originally wrote has been worked into the show, or did it really just serve as a framework? Um, it was a, it was a very um, it was a very thought out framework, but he, he hadn't written a script. He hadn't mm -hmm. written any dialogue or, or or that. He had. I was shown about eight pages of of basically an essay about what the mm -hmm. show should be, um, and then he had he had uh, singled out the character of Assam. Um, and the character of Big Bill. And um, I'm trying to remember, I believe there was a third, but I'm blanking on who it was, but he, he, had, he had singled out three characters and, and basically the time period and what this, uh, what this character's journey is. And obviously, you know, Bruce Lee came of age in a very different time in television when television wasn't being done the way it is now. So his his concept very much lent itself to a weekly um, sort of a, an episode of the week concept mm -hmm. that sort of existed back then in television right. and, and probably was a little less um, anti-hero. It was much more hero because in, the, in those days in television, right. you know, the hero was the hero, the villain right. was the villain. Um, but Shannon was really great about, you know, saying, here's the material. I'm obviously going to keep an eye on this, but you obviously, but you should feel free to invent this for today's television marketplace. And you know, so Assam became both a hero and an anti-hero, and and we made a much more complicated world, and we built it out. But it was all based on the fact that the spirit of he want, of what he wanted to do was was sort of teach the lessons of Gong Fu while also highlighting a time of the uh, Chinese immigrant experience that really spells out, you know both allegorically and actually what the immigrant experience was for him in modern times. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something we, we really tried to straight, stay true to. And, and we also obviously put in a lot of homages to him. We, we limited them, but they're definitely there for the fans. And we tried to really capture sort of the, the 2020 version of what Bruce Lee 
did as far as innovations to to the martial arts movies. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of that. Yeah. I think you really grabbed a lot of that. And one of the things that we have talked about from the beginning is is sort of both that it is this you know historical look at at their experience, but also very current. And in a way that, uh, I mean, I imagine you didn't quite realize <laughs> what was coming. And at- when, I wrote the, when I wrote the pilot, you know, uh, Obama was still president and we weren't, the immigration issues were not front and center in, in the consciousness of the country. And, you know, gradually as, as, as the new administration came in and as our world changed, uh, not changed, but I guess as, as certain parts of our world became more unearthed than, than they had been before, you know, a lot of what we were doing you know, from 150 years ago, started repeating itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was that? I mean, I guess I'm wondering sort of what that experience was like, because the, a lot of the language that you use, some it, of you know, is it mirrors exactly what we hear. Okay, you're like, um, no, we you know, had by that. that. Certainly, in the second season, mm. uh, by the time we wrote the second season, you know, the administration was in place, Trump was president, and so it was much easier to channel that. Um, in the first season, you know, it, it, was, it was really more a reflection of, of history. The second season, we were very conscious that we were writing a show that had suddenly become extremely relevant. So yeah. they, there is a different, a different tone there. Yeah, it's, it is both beautiful and important and hard to watch. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird mix of a show, which is, I think, what makes it uh, actually really unique is that it is a martial arts adventure show. It is an action show. There is an le- element of pulp to it. And at the same time, we're, we're really trying to um, do a deep dive into sort of systemic racism in the history of the country and, and to really convey you know, that experience uh, for the Chinese. Um, in season two, we also, we also convey a little bit of it from the Mexican side and just sort of the notion, this is, this is a country built by immigrants that has always had an incredibly difficult relationship with its own immigrants. And, um, you know, so, so it's weird that we're, we're trying to be, you know, not quite a message show, but we're really trying to illuminate, you know, a certain facet of our country's history and present while doing it in this really sexy, fun package. And, mm-hmm. and so it, it sort of evolved into something that I think is a little bigger than the sum of its parts. Yeah. And I think one of the things that the show does so well is that there's no, as you said, it's, you know, it's, it's a very anti-hero. No one in this story well, maybe Buckley is done. <laughs> There's not much hero in Buckley at all. <laughs> Unless, you know, you're a white supremacist, then <laughs> woo, there's your God. <laughs> but um, that all of the character characters are good and bad. And that you, that the very, very intricate, you know, web of racism and oppression is represented so well in the show, especially when you throw the Irish in that you know it's no longer just the chinese and white people are you know that there's so there's so many layers to this and I, you know i've said it before i think it was brilliant to increase the role of leary this season to add in that layer of yeah you know we're americans well are you really i mean listen to your accent and that the way in which buckley you know keeps control is for all the little people to be fighting amongst each other and you know never addressing the big picture 
which is exactly what we have going on and which, you know, we've, <clears throat> throughout history, you've just never been able to overcome that manipulation of fighting amongst each other. So I guess when you look at a storyboard for this show or look at the whiteboard of how you laid out this entire sort of philosophy and the relationships between the different groups, what does that look like? Because it's so complicated and yet so clear. Well, well, first of all, I also want to say before I answer that, just the reason I'm really bummed that we don't have a clear path to season three right now is it, it was not the goal of the show to present the Irish as the bad guys. And, right. you know, in season two, we started by sort of, you know, really giving a human side to Leary and, and showing sort of his point of view as you know, the Irish were pawns in this game too. Correct. And what I would love to get to in season three is just the demonstration that it's not about Irish and Chinese. It's not even really about white and yellow, though of course it is, but what it's about is whoever the, whoever the immigrant group that comes in and gets a toehold, they are then pitted against the next group of immigrants right. who are gonna be used as cheap labor and it's an endless cycle. And, and in this time period, you know, the Irish were the labor force. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't that the Chinese came in aiming to steal all their jobs. It's that the, the aristocracy brought them in right. and, and pitted them against each other. And, and it's sort of, it's like free market gone mad. And, and that's where, you know, I would have liked to have gotten into season three to, to really solidify the fact that we're not singling out the Irish. It's just in this time period, the Irish were the labor force. Right. Um, but in terms of planning all of the... Um, you know, all of the, all of the plot lines. Um, one of the things that sort of, you know, I was a novelist before I was a TV writer. So I was very used to sort of um, large plot outlines, but, but for me, one of the, one of the things that I sort of, I, I learned on Banshee um, and I'll embarrass myself and tell you where it comes from is that the most satisfying thing to me is to create three or four disparate worlds but have a rule that anything happening in one has to affect all three. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a way of creating this ecosystem. And it actually, it seems complicated, but it actually helps you drive plot in a writer's room because you know anything happening in Chinatown has to affect what's happening in Penny's house and has to affect what's happening in Leary's bar and has to affect what's happening in the police station. And if you know that as your guiding principle, you end up coming out with these sort of, you know, ribbons of plot that, that beautifully intertwine all the different worlds. So, it, it seems complicated and sometimes it is complicated, but it's also a framework and it helps you write and it helps you really, because if, if you come up with a great plot line, but you can't involve the other parts of your show, then you have to toss it because it's not going to be satisfying because it's, it, except when we do a, once, once a season, we do a standalone episode, but right. beyond that, you need to be treating the whole thing holistically. Um, which is a lesson I, I sort of, if you go back and look at Banshee, that's what we do on Banshee. And weirdly, the, the reason that lodged in my head as a way to do entertaining uh, television is, is actually not from television, it's from the movies. But I remember as a kid going to see The Empire Strikes Back and just being blown away by the fact that every time you sort of drop deep into one plot line, there would be a funny little 80s transition on the screen mm -hmm. and you'd end up in a different plot line <laughs> and you'd say, oh yeah, this world's... And, and it was just really exciting to me. And that I think that just sort of got fused in my brain as sort of optimal visual storytelling is to have multiple worlds that you're constantly bouncing back and forth from. Um, well, it's great. And you, it's shown so well in Warrior how 
every character's little decisions along the way has culminated in what we saw in episodes nine and 10. Little decisions along the way, little bad decisions along the way. And this is what it brought us to. And it's just brilliant. And it's for every character, Sophie, Leary, Awesome, you know, just little Thank decisions you. along the way. You know, one of, one of the sort of, uh, one of my little sensitive spots about doing two shows for, for uh, Cinemax is that, you know, people have their notions of Cinemax. It used to be Skinemax, and now it's just sort of these pulpy action shows. And, you know, we take so much care with our character development and with the language of the show and the writing of the show. And I feel like it holds its own against shows on any other network, Absolutely. but you do get a little bit dismissed as a Cinemax show. So I was really pleased when we came out that, you know, all the major TV critics really did respond to the show and write about the show, you know, mm -hmm. not thinking about the fact that it's a Cinemax show, but just seeing you know the show for what it is and and that was really gratifying to me after four years of, of banshee where it was like this is a really great cinemax show exactly you know um yeah so it was it was a night it was nice to see us at least get that notification that, yeah that yeah it's like they got their talking points oh it's action okay we say these things we don't ever really admit that we thought it was really deep and good <laughs> yeah. and that we're continuing to watch it but <laughs> You know, we'll say it's great for action, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> Yeah, one of the things that we have talked about is that, like you said, that the interconnectedness, that there are no threads that end up dropped, because that is one of the things that I think drives audiences crazy when you have a Game of Thrones that has all these like little threads that you're like, where did that go? Why did they bring that up? Everything matters. And I think we especially saw how important that was in season two because you took an already large cast added more people to it yeah. you have like a million things going on and it feels like we see a little bit less of everybody but every word is so important and so thought out and so tied to it that you don't ever feel at any point that a character got shorted or a plot line got lost I mean, it was really incredible, and I guess, but I am very curious, when you are already juggling so many characters, how did you go into season two and go like, oh yeah, we should totally add more? It, it's it's a form of masochism, <laughs> and, and, and honestly, when I finished Banshee, which had a lot of characters, uh -huh. my goal was to have a show with like two main characters, and like one of the supporting characters, and the whole thing takes place in one room, and like... <laughs> You know, and that was, and then this thing just blew that out of the water. But you do need the new characters to just keep the story going. So like, nobody wants to come in season after season and just see the same people doing the same thing again. Um, you need sort of um, spoilers, right? You need people who come in and 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 change the dynamic. Um, and you know, and so yeah, so we did that, and and it did become a little more challenging to sort of hit everybody and and see everybody and and. Uh, but at the same time, if you do the math, right, we had Bolo in season one, but he dies. So there's one slot open. And so we didn't really bring in three new characters. We only brought in two new characters. Mm -hmm. And, um, <laughs> you know, but, but, but it was just really, in, in each case, it was really important. Like one of our, our, our stated goals when we sat down in the writer's room in season two was certainly like we need to open up Atoy, right? Mm -hmm. Atoy is such a fascinating character and, and she's based on, on a, a real uh, historical figure that I came across in my research. And in season one, even though she's fascinating, you never really get in there, right? You, you, right. She just has this kind of, you know, impenetrable allure. And 
Um, you know she has secrets, but you you know you don't understand her trauma. You don't understand who she is as a person. And so, you know, in doing the research, uh, actually my wife uh, had done a lot of the research for season two for us and for season one. Um, she came across this character of Donaldina Cameron, who right. was this this woman who went in and, and tried to pull out young uh, Chinese slave work, uh, sex workers out of out of the brothels, and we completely reinvented her as a fictional character doing other things, but it was a chance to sort of make Atoy, you know, face this conundrum of, I'm sort of a champion of my people, but I'm also exploiting them. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a warrior and I'm also a, you know, a, 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 I'm in the sex trade. And it's, it's, you know, her having to sort of confront that in herself required somebody else sort of bringing her that reality. Um, so it was always in service of, of the existing characters, um, but, you know, like Hong, Han comes in basically in service of Assam and and uh, and Young June, but ultimately will justify his place as his own character. And so it's just, it, you know, you only realize when you're done. Well, we've kind of set up a lot of hurdles for ourselves, you know. Now <laughs> but um, you know, but it's good, and, and it's a it's a it's a writers' room full of like fans. So we're fanboys, and we're we're geeks and we watch all a lot of these shows. So we're very conscious about the things that annoy us and the things, you know, like like leaving plot lines hanging and things like that. Like we wouldn't do that because we'd be too annoyed if someone did that to us. So we're pretty careful about that. And we'll just take a moment and thank you for Hong. He was, yeah, we, Hong is awesome. <laughs> yes. And I would want to come back for season three just for Hong. Just, just for just, Hong, just, right. Keep, keep that arc going. Yeah, we had a very deep discussion on on the power, the change in power dynamics with Hong at the very end of season two. So we yeah. have to have a season three just for that. Yeah. Um, you you brought up taking a deeper dive into Atoy and and her dilemma of, you know, protecting her people but using her people, and she's not the only character on the show who does that. Really, almost everyone does, mm -hmm. and Chow is also one of those characters yeah. who we got a deeper dive into this season, who also is, you know, protecting his people, but makes his living off of selling the weapons to the people, to his people to kill each other. Mm -hmm. So, you know, did you take a look at each character from that? Yeah, of course. Of I, you, you just never want the second season to be a retread. And season one, you know, all season ones require a certain amount of architecture and, and building the world. And so, even though I thought we spun a lot of story in season one, it was still sort of putting everyone on the board, moving all the pieces around. And so season two, we didn't have to do any of that. So we could really spend our time like getting to know these characters better and understanding them better because to just see any one of them spend another 10 episodes doing stuff similar to what they did in season one is just, you know, it won't be satisfying. So, so the goal was to just, you know, go, you know, degrees deeper into every character uh, reveal surprising things about them, sort of understand them better without necessarily sympathizing with them or changing them, but just you know understand everybody better. Um, the goal is to never justify their justify their behavior morally, just justify it psychologically and emotionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because morally they're all fucked. I mean, it's just, <laughs> exactly. Uh, <you> know. <laughs> and yet it's interesting if if you go in social media the the seeing some of the reactions that people definitely just sort of dismiss that whole gray area or, you know, 
lack of morality for a lot of these characters and focus on the hero aspect of things. Well, you know, ever since the Sopranos, that's what that's where we're at. Is that you know, yeah. once you get sucked in, you leave your morality at the door, and now it's just about relative morality. It's the morality of each character. So yeah, we, like, people, I mean, these are drug dealers. Yeah, I was gonna say we we find ourselves doing that, and we'll have these conversations about Lee Young, and he wants to do this the honorable way, and you know, trying to you know help. Myling see like the the right way and now we're like to but he's deal a drugs. killer <laughs> like, <no. laughs> he's a drug dealer and a killer yeah you know <laughs> yeah. like oh look at young jude and father jude having this beautiful you know like final end and he's taking over to be a drug dealer okay like the little checks <laughs> that you kind of have to do to yeah. yourself if you've got nothing else it's that uh you know killers are people too <laughs> Too. There's the tagline right. for season three. <laughs> Except Buckley, he doesn't get to be a person. Right. Although oh, we did get a little humanity for uh, season. <laughs> yes, we still, you know. Um, so one of the things that I always find fascinating is the way that that everyone has talked about having these sort of. We, we talked to Lonnie, and he was lovely, and he talked about like you know the actors having like magic items is one of the things that he was like you know yeah and jason talked about his holsters being sort of like his thing he put on and um emily talked about her apron you know and, and like becoming lucy and i guess i'm just wondering you know from from you you have this huge overview and yet still building all these details is how you sort of help them find that thing when you're having to look at such a big picture and well there and are you know there are a lot of independent processes that 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 i don't micromanage and i think you know the actors sit down with wardrobe the actors sit down with props and very often it's their own invention and then they just run it by me like to make sure it's not something that will screw something up but like you know i we i knew jason was going to fight with two knives and that i wanted him to have a holster where they came out of his back but the fact that that became something for him, that that wasn't my intention. That was just a happy accident. You know what I mean? Like um, a lot of that stuff, you know, once the actors own the roles, a lot of that stuff happens organically and it's not something that has to be mandated from, from me or from the writer's room. Uh, That's so funny because they all are like, <laughs> it goes from Jonathan. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the character comes from me and the, you know, the trappings come from me, but in the evolution of them working with stunts on their fighting style and working with props on what they're using and working with all that, you know, occasionally there's something already specified, you know, like it was already specified, Jason's gonna be a two-handed knife fighter. That was something I had already specified. But, you know, you know, in other cases, you know, I had said I want Han to fight with the chain, but you know, how that's done and how that works, that all then evolves between their meetings with Brett Chan, our fight coordinator. And, you know, th there's a lot that goes on within the actors sort of taking ownership of their characters. And it's more me just being almost like a consultant um, as opposed to it all having been, you know, mandated by me. Like a toy throwing a knife out of her hair. I don't remember us inventing that. I think that must have come from from Brett Chan and, and Olivia and we were just like oh that's really cool yeah you know like so I think it happens on both you know in a good show where you've created a good ecosystem I think it, it happens on both sides and everybody just meets in the middle that's a girl code thing we can all do that did you know <laughs> we all have knives in our hair. Um, I'm interested in sort of taking a step back from 
the um, from the show. It's and taking a bigger look at it, just running this production because we've heard from you know from everyone about we're used to talking about Cinemax having a really fast pace and yeah. um, you know not much rehearsal time and you know that it, that it's quick work and intense work but it sounds like it was even more so for warrior that you were double banking that you had multiple episodes being filmed at a time yeah, which and... i was not happy about um that was <laughs> that was not a cinemax mandate it, well it, it was what it was is it was our producer richard who, who's our physical producer who's a great producer um figuring out a way to we were either going to have to cut days out of production and we didn't have the money to get the days we needed to make everything. So he came up with a plan to double bang four episodes in a way that got us the days. I don't understand the math of it and I don't know why it worked. And uh, to be honest, I don't know if it did work. I do know that we were very lucky to get out of that with as few reshoots as we did because we didn't have any money for reshoots. And, um, yeah, it, it's very intense. Um, the best thing we had going for us on a show like ours is when the actors aren't acting, they have to be like learning fight sequences, right. you know, a lot of them. And, you know, Brett Chan, who's not only a great fight coordinator, but he's also kind of like a camp counselor. And he created a world, which I'm sure the actors told you about, but, but he created a world in, 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 he had like a big airplane hangar of a stunt uh, academy. And he created a world where whether or not you had a fight coming up, the actors just went there two or three times a week to train. There were like group yoga sessions. There was group sparring sessions. Like he just, he wanted, he created kind of a family rec center. Uh, so we never had to fight like you do on other shows, getting your actors in for stunt rehearsals. Like the actors were always there. Mm -hmm. And so we managed to get a lot of that stuff done on weekends and on days when the actors weren't necessarily technically working. But Brett always had them there, and, and he sort of ran the entire sort of social experience of being on Warrior. Um, but yeah, we're, we're always chasing the light, we're always chasing our days, and we're always coming up with inventive ways to get it all shot. Like sometimes it's, you know, we do, we were a, a two to three camera show, and sometimes it would be like the only way to get a scene done is while we're shooting this scene, we're going to take B camera and send them over there, shoot that scene. And you know, playing all these games to just get all the footage you need, and you know that was sort of a a skill I learned uh, uh, on Banshee, working with Greg Etanis, who's sort of the master of that, and try to bring with me wherever I go. Just the notion of like, it's never enough money. You know, the show the show I'm shooting now has a lot more money than the show we had there. I still find myself saying, let's go and throw up a camera and get that scene because you know, you always sort of spend all the money you have. It's just <laughs> so talking about a, season, a possible season three um i mean it, to us of course you know being on the outside we look at it hbo seems you know hbo max with the you know they seem like they are interested in shows that are similar to this and that they're sort of addressing racism through other ways and we have lovecraft country and Watchmen. um I mean, it to seems clear, those, both of those shows are HBO, HBO. not HBO Max. Sorry, sorry, yes, And it's HBO. super confusing no, to everybody. Yes, uh, it is confusing. They've done a terrible disservice to the consumer by, by naming everything the same thing. It's just, okay. yes. what's HBO? What's HBO Max? Like, nobody knows, but anyway. Okay, well, I guess I, it, to me, the lineup on HBO I Max. I flight attendant is yes. HBO Max. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so it so, feels like there's a chance 
Well, this is the thing. They didn't, you know, we, we approached them at, at, I knew, I knew pretty much as we were finishing season two that there was a problem, Mm -hmm. which is that Cinemax, you know, AT&T had bought everybody and um, Cinemax did not seem to be getting a budget. I could tell we were going to have a problem because we were on a really good cycle and the time was coming to pick everyone up for the third cycle and nothing was happening. So I proactively reached out to HBO Max and got, you know, very politely dismissed and they were like, you know, we're a new company, we're making our own stuff, we're not interested in stuff that's already aired, we're not interested in, you know, picking that stuff up. And, um, and then again, when Cinemax officially announced they weren't going to be able to make it anymore, we went to them again, uh, to no avail. They then said, you can shop it. So we took it to, Cine- uh, to Netflix, and we took it to Amazon, and we took it to a number of other places. And the issue there was that the first two seasons are tied up in all sorts of output deals that I don't understand. But you know, Netflix really would have wanted the show. They expressed great interest in the show, but they need to own the whole, the whole deal. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that the first two seasons you know, were, were under certain commitments, made it real, at least the first season, made it sort of against their whole business model of being able to globally own a show. So, uh, so you know, one thing we were successful in doing, and so far we're the only Cinemax show that's been that successful, right. is lobbying for at least the show to appear on all the HBO platforms. So come January, when, once it's finished at Cinemax run, which it just finished, you'll be able to watch the show on demand on HBO Max, on HBO, on, 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 these, uh, on, on these platforms. And our hope is that it gets a lot of eyeballs. And if it gets a lot of eyeballs, that they might be open to us coming in with a pitch, you know, Justin, Shannon, and myself. You know, we, we have Justin, who's the 800-pound gorilla. I think everyone wants to be in business with Justin. And all the actors are, are willing to come back. They're dying to come back. So if, if, if the show performs, Mm-hmm. And we can come in with a great pitch for how we re- restart the show again. I, you know, we might get a receptive audience, but I, you know, right now it's just a hope. Right. Well, it's a hope that we plan to act heavily upon <laughs> because it's definitely something that we would like to see. And, you know, all the, all of our fans and the fans out there do. In fact, it's, it's almost mind boggling how many of them are just getting it that, there, there is, is no season three. That yeah, there's, Cinemax there's definitely is an information disconnect because if you go on social media, there's always people. I'm still getting asked about season five of Banshee. Like yeah, I, exactly. I think there's, there's a little bit of a social yeah. disconnect. Well, every day we get um, te- or tweets and you know Instagram messages from people saying, "Oh, I just discovered Strike Back. Is there going to be another and, season?" And at least with Strike Back, you've got you know you've got the old version, you've got the new version, you've yeah. got plenty of seasons to watch, but. Yeah. Um, and you know now that Anthony stars on the boys, you know suddenly yeah. everyone's discovered Banshee, Banshee. again. Now right. Like, well, where's where's the rest of Banshee? Yeah. <laughs> well, it does seem. I think the, the unfortunate part is because Cinemax just sort of went away, or their originals yeah. went away. You know, we sort of said it's like they ghosted Warrior. There was never any announcement for anything. So yeah. you know, it just like I think that's why you know if people don't understand. There's not because it's like yeah i mean i i think i i don't i can't speak for the management at at&t and hbo max and hbo i don't know them but mm. you know i just think they've they've got a gigantic uh slate to deal with and mm-hmm. they're dealing with a lot of stuff and the notion of you know picking up you know sloppy seconds from cinemax doesn't really appeal to them unless the show achieved some kind of real critical 
uh, mass on their platform that they say, hey, there are, there's a fan base for this. We ought to, I mean, I thought, I thought they should have taken the entire Cinemax library because exactly. it's tremendous material and it's, and I don't know, I, I say it's free. I don't know if it's really free. I don't know what the financials are. Between yeah, but it does, stuff. we have said the same thing, like you this is it. your stuff. You like, and, and there's clearly a huge enough audience for mm -hmm. it. You know, if, you're, if you get an extra 10 to 15 million viewers watching the Cinemax stuff, why wouldn't you want to feed that? That, that is an endless audience, action and genre. Like, why wouldn't you want that? Mm -hmm. so and I it's a devoted audience, you know? Yeah, These are... it's a, yes, it's the Comic-Con audience. It's like exactly. the people who you can count on to launch your shows. Yeah. I don't, I don't really understand it. Um, you know, I don't know. It might just be me because I, I have a Warner Brothers movie that's not on the platform either. So, you know, it's just <laughs> clearly they don't like me, but... Uh, well, you know. no, it, it really, it's hard to make sense of. And you, you had that feeling when you saw that Carrie Antholis' role was changing within HBO, that, oh, something's not right here. Something's going on. And then eventually, he left. You know, yeah. Cinemax is done. Yeah. Um, but it, it, these are not shows that were not profitable. These were good yeah shows that they spent a lot of money and made money on so, so it doesn't make is, sense my understanding is that cinemax made a ton of money for hbo i don't right. know exactly how the whole thing worked but i believe the way it worked is hbo they made these shows inexpensively and then they sold them all over the world right and hbo made a lot of money on that and so clearly you know there is an audience for these shows and and i, I don't think the last chapter has been written and i would like to think that Banshee and Strike Back, you know, and, and, you know, all those shows will end up uh, on the HBO Max platform, but I don't know how it all yeah. works and nobody's, yeah. nobody's interested in telling me, so. <laughs> well, we will all hope and pray, uh, yeah. you know, it's just action that's different. I think then then you, either you're going to get on regular TV, you just don't, you don't see this yet. Yeah, I know. And, and what really killed me is that the barriers to viewership on Cinemax are so great because, I mean, you can see their subscriber base has fallen so much because mm -hmm. they're not making anything right. new. So yeah. Warrior comes out and gets these great reviews, but even people who read that, they don't have Cinemax. They can't see it. Right. And so the hope is now that it hits HBO Max, um, people will find it. Mm -hmm. that, that's just my hope. I and, mean, you know, I was talking to Justin about, and Shannon about doing whatever we can, since I don't think there's going to be a marketing campaign for mm -hmm. us on HBO Max, you know, to, to just get the word out that it's on all the HBO platforms now and people mm -hmm. should check it out. So. Yeah. Well, we, we will definitely be, yeah. be pumping it as well. And, and that's yeah. part of why we wanted to do these sort of extra interviews is to, once it gets on HBO, be putting these out like, hey, yeah. look, there's still people talking about it, you know? No, for me, it's always, it's always very validating. And I'm always very appreciative when I do shows like this and podcasts like this and interviews with, with the people who clearly get it, you know, because... I, I think, you know, we're, we're out there and there's more of us there, you know, I, I think that there's a large segment of the population that loves this stuff, but there's only a handful of us that are actually plugged into it right now because of the barriers to viewership, which is yeah. what we're hoping. You know, when I, um, I had this weird experience because Hoon Lee, who's, who plays Wang Chao on Warrior, um, mm -hmm. and who was also on Banshee for Four Seasons, you know, so he and I were in uh, Cape Town together because that's where we shot Warrior and we went out to dinner, we went out for sushi and you know, the waiter recognized him from Banshee. And then someone in seating one of the other tables recognized him from Banshee. And, you know, outside of the United States, these shows right. play on the major networks. And 
you know, and they and they're successful. But in the United States, Cinemax sort of hot, pulls you away from the HBO mainstream, mm -hmm. and and it's just so ironic to me that these are American-made shows that actually are more popular everywhere but the United States. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so and it just is, you know, it doesn't make sense. But why would you spend so much money and bring in such amazing talent and create these really really great programs and then ignore them? I don't know. I'd love I'd love to have a meeting there and discuss it, but you know, <laughs> they, they don't they don't exactly return my calls these days. No, <laughs> uh, anyway, it, it took that Vanity Fair article to get them to actually budge on moving Warrior to the HBO platform. So that was because Mo Ryan, who you know, like you guys and like a lot of people, is really passionate about this stuff, just wanted answers, and and, right. and I think they just felt like yeah, she's got a point. We should put it on the platform. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. Then I wanted to call them up and go, wait, what about Banshee? Let's, let's, right. let's go <laughs> Get everything over there. Yeah. But that was huge. I know when I saw that that was going to happen, that was like, okay, there's, yeah, there's like the, the open first, door. The first crack in the, uh, first chink in the armor. Maybe we can, maybe we can get something going there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Thanks and tune in next week for another Need to Know session at the Crib. Follow us on Twitter at Strike Back Crib. Out.